0: It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. It's the holiday season, and we here at Pantsuit Politics are not above asking for gifts. What we really need right now is your support through the form of reviews of The Nuance Life. If you are a new listener and you're enjoying the podcast, um, rating and reviewing the show helps iTunes discover it and send it out to new listeners, which is always a fun experience, especially since all of our program is so community-driven, and you guys make it such a huge part. So the more, the better. So if you have a minute, please um, go to iTunes or the podcast app on your iPhone and leave a review for The Nuance life. President Trump has now declared Jerusalem the capital of Israel.
1: We cover this week's news and listener feedback in today's episode. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to our Friday episode. Thank you so much for joining us. In addition to the gifts that Sarah asked for at the beginning of the podcast, we would also love your support in the form of going to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics and considering supporting the show at any of the levels there. You'll find lots of hidden content. We're very excited to record our December bonus episode for $15 a month patrons and higher. We're going to do kind of a mashup of holiday and political themes based on the feedback that you've given us in Patreon. So we're excited to record that. At the $25 level and up, you can have access to our catalog of primers. So when we publish new primers, we keep them in the podcast feed for two weeks, but you can get them forever in Patreon. And this would be a great time to review the Israel and Palestine primer that we did several months ago. So that is there for you. And if you would like to have Suit Politics come speak to your organization, university, or other group, just send me an email. It's been lots of fun corresponding with people all over the United States and we're excited to get a 2018 schedule put together.
0: President Trump has declared Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, reversing decades of Middle East foreign policy. Thoughts on that?
1: Well, this is complicated and it has been condemned by just about everybody outside of the United States.
0: Except Duarte, who I'm always glad to have him on our side.
1: So I think that what is important to understand here is that the United States has been trying for a very long time to have it both ways with respect to the conflict in Israel. The United States both wants to be the mediator of the conflict between Israeli and Palestinian sides, and that's a vast oversimplification too, right? This isn't just a two-party issue, but Mm -hmm. talking about it that way has become our default, so I'm going to use that as shorthand. But the United States has wanted to mediate that conflict as a neutral, while our politicians simultaneously run in the United States on being 100% in Israel's column Mm -hmm. because of the Judeo-Christian portions of our population that are Very politically engaged. I think that President Trump is, in some ways, doing a lot of a a Trumpian thing by being a little bit more honest about where our politicians have been. He did promise this during the campaign and is fulfilling that promise. I don't think he has any idea what this means on the ground. And I think that is the problem. I don't think I have any idea what it means on the ground. You know, I can read about the historic symbolism of Jerusalem all day. I can read about how this will escalate forces in the Middle East. And I can zoom way out and see that President Trump did not make this decision in a vacuum. This isn't just President Trump supporting Israel. This is coming from a president who has also tweeted fake anti-Muslim videos. Mm-hmm. So this is not, I think, the same as a President Jeb Bush, who has expressed support for this decision, making a decision like this. It's all part of a larger story. I wouldn't be excited if Jeb Bush did this because, frankly, I think this is one that America should move more toward a one of many neutral countries in the world who support a peaceful resolution to a a long-standing and bloody conflict so i guess that's a mashup of my high-level thoughts on this
0: well so i've been thinking about this at multiple levels so first of all with regards to the individual decision makers primarily from reporting president trump and in particular his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who has been um, lost a lot of influence inside the White House since um, he gave the very terrible advice to fire James Comey and has become an increasingly a focus of the Mueller investigation. So he seems to be wanting to exert influence and has pinned his hopes of his um, sort of power play and his influence on brokering a Middle East peace deal. He also is incredibly close with the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia who is exerting um, more and more authority within the country, um, both taking the country in more progressive area, uh, progressive approaches, um, and also sort of escalating conflicts in Yemen, in Lebanon and Qatar, and arguably destabilizing the region. I think I don't think that's a unfair thing to say. So he's a, he's a mixed bag, that crown prince. But Jared Kushner seems to be close with him. The reporting I'm reading from Trump is what you would expect. This is a selfish, myopic, ego-driven decision. He wants to deliver on a campaign promise. He wants to make Sheldon Adelson happy, who is a huge donor to his campaign and is um, supportive of this move. And he wants to give evangelicals a win. Evangelicals who I did not grow up in this tradition, but there is a huge proportion of the evangelical population that believes this is moving us towards a um, sort of revelations, uh, end of times prophecy. I find this entire philosophy so disturbing. Um, The idea that we play chess with other people's regions and other people's homelands and other people's lives because of our religious beliefs is so antithetical to everything I understand of my own Christian faith. It's hard for me to put it into words. But also this sort of chess playing with Donald Trump and Jared Kushner. Well, I want to get my I want to I want my wins. I want my campaign promises. The um. Reporting from Kushner's camp is that he just thinks, you know, we'll just leave a cooling off period and everything will be fine. There might be some riots. People will most likely die. And the fact that you are so dismissive of that, that you are playing chess with other people's lives and you just, you know, what's really important is to exert your influence and and to fulfill campaign promises is so infuriating to me and so selfish and so... Not understanding of the responsibility you hold. I can't say it's surprising, but it doesn't stop being infuriating. Now, globally, I listened to the Daily this morning, and I do think there is, I don't know if this is their motivation, but there does seem to be this, we're going to expose the real reality of our bargaining position, which is... We are not neutral. We are supportive of Israel. And the Arab world has is supportive of Palestine only to a point and it is not their top priority and they are basically going to leave you out to dry on this. That arguably does change the negotiation. Maybe it brings it to an end. Maybe it just acknowledges the reality that everyone in the region and around the world has known for a long time which is the Palestinians do not have much bargaining capacity. And I just thought how hopeless I would feel as a Palestinian right now and how abandoned. And look, I don't want to get into who's right and who's wrong and the geopolitical machinations that have gone on for decades in that region. And I'm not necessarily at all anti-Israel. But sometimes it's just helpful to think about if by chance of birth— and nothing more, you were Palestinian, how would you feel right now? And it's just, I just feel like it just, I'm not sure this was their motivation, but it does seem to have exposed the reality on the ground, and that peace is a pretty empty word right now in that region. And it's just... It's disheartening, and I'm worried about the Day of Rage on the day this podcast, we're recording on Thursday, Um, so this is going to come out on Friday. I'm worried about what's going to happen on Friday. I think the dismissiveness in which the Trump administration talks about this decision while at the same time the State Department is sending out alerts to Americans all over the world that their safety is in jeopardy because of this decision is just gross. And, you know, I don't think that there is any reason, cooling off period or not, to be hopeful for peace in the region. I think that this region is going under some very dramatic changes, and I am worried about the outcome.
1: I think your point about empathy is important because any fair reading of history shows that there are innocents and aggressors on both sides of this conflict, on mm-hmm. all sides of this conflict. Mm-hmm. There are religious warriors and there are pacifists. Mm -hmm. spanning all sides of this conflict. And to simplify it to good guys, bad guys, does an incredible disservice not only to the, the faith underlying some of this, and some of this isn't about faith, right? A lot of it isn't about faith. A lot of it is about nationalism and race and all kinds of things. There are so many layers to this. So to simplify it to, we need to think in a new way about this, and Israel is our ally, and so we're going to recognize Jerusalem as the rightful capital of Israel, it just misses an awful lot that's pretty important. What I really don't understand, and this kind of connects to our conversation about the economy and taxes, stay with me, I know that's a strange connection to make, about expectations, because while the situation is in Israel has always been difficult and remains so it is more stable than it has been at other moments in history. And this is a choice to make it less. So at -hmm. least in the short term, and it's hard for me to understand making that choice when it's not like the world is hanging out thinking, what should we think about right now Mm -hmm. to your point in the middle East in North Korea, with natural disasters, there's a full plate.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: The foreign policy inbox is stacked up. Why are you choosing right now to create something else in that inbox? It, It feels to me like the economy we were talking about. Our expectations for growth are unrealistic. We've manufactured a crisis that requires a tax cut. When actually... It doesn't feel amazing. It's not ideal. It's not perfect. We've got some issues to fix. But we aren't in crisis. And we pu- might be putting ourselves in crisis by manufacturing one. And that's what this move feels like to me.
0: Yeah. And I just, I I don't know if we have any listeners in Israel, but I would also just wonder how Israelis feel like. It feels like it is also, again, adding more energy and aggression into a situation that didn't need it. You know, the idea that, like, we'll just remove this roadblock and we'll get this big thing out of the way so we can really sit down at the negotiating table. Like, what big thing do the Palestinians have left? Like, I think we've sort of abandoned the idea that they're, like, sort of the, the land itself, it seems like. There's no really air in that conversation anymore. And so to hold to this two-state solution with the capital in Jerusalem was sort of a big thing. I'm not really sure what's left. I don't know. I just... I don't get it. I can't imagine, as the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, I would be having a little bit of whiplash between them rightfully calling out the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, doing this after this big visit with the glowing orb and we're allies. And there's there's a part of me that wants to look at the Arab leadership and be like, did you think he was your friend? As he goes to goes on Twitter and tweets these awful, offensive, anti-Muslim things. And y'all rolled out the red carpet for him and thought he was going to be nice to you, and now he's creating this conflict in your area of the world. Like I, I just, if I was the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, I would be really re-evaluating my relationship, particularly with Jared Kushner and with Donald Trump. Like I don't think he's an ally of y'all's. I really don't.
1: The New York Times sort of makes that point about Netanyahu as well. Kind of at the end of a, a piece about this, the writer said one has to wonder what Trump is going to expect from Israel in return. Hmm. What bargaining chip will Trump force down Israel's throat at a moment that might bolster Trump's legacy or broker a deal? Will he extract some major concession from Israel now in trying to get to a deal on this conflict because he's done this for them? And I thought that was a really good point. Now, I can hear um, fans of President Trump saying, See, good move. This is bold, risk-taking, negotiating. This has to be done. And I I understand that in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. But we're not operating in a vacuum. And I do think that when you add to this the context of a travel ban admittedly designed to prevent Muslims from coming into the United States and the president's tweets and his statements about Islam Over the past two years, you see someone who, despite not having any real interest in Christianity for the bulk of his life, appears to be ready to wage a holy war. And Mm -hmm. that concerns me. It Mm -hmm. concerns me as an American, as a person in the world. And I feel a deep sense of sadness as a person of faith right now that that's the kind of conversation that we're having about religion.
0: And just because this is a word we always use when we talk about him, it just feels transactional. It just feels like, what am I going to get out of this? As if you're the only person that matters in this scenario. As if this isn't a huge geopolitical decision with huge geopolitical consequences. And you're just like, oh, great, I get to fulfill campaign promises and make my donors happy. Like, it's just so, so naked in its egotistical motivations.
1: Motivations has is an interesting word to transition to our next topic because the discussion around pressure on Al Franken and John Conyers has been in classic DC fashion layered onto with cynicism, right? About what the motivations are at this point.
0: Well, I read, so again, probably by the time we have released the show on Friday, Al Franken will have resigned. There is a public press conference today on thursday with regards to his future um the party leadership touched off in part by the female senators who said apparently there was like text messaging which is can't side note can i get on that group text with all the female democratic senators? what do i have to do i'll do anything um that they were basically like if there's one more woman like this is it that's enough we gotta stop we gotta shut this down um also john conyers resigned uh, retired excuse me he retired um and he still is denying any responsibility for the multiple sexual harassment claims against him at this point you know i think that particularly Gillibrand, or as i like to think about her president-elect Gillibrand, because that's what i'm hoping for um you know she has taken so many leads on issues of sexual harassment and sexual assault i think she knew that this was um untenable and like i just think that truthfully Both things can coexist at the same time. She can believe wholeheartedly in this issue and believe that him stepping down is the right thing and understand the political consequences and reality of not calling for his... Like, I just... Human beings are complicated. Motivations um, exist beside each other, so that doesn't really um, bother me. I'm I'm happy to see both of them go. I would like to see anybody else go. And I I do think that it presents a stark contrast with the um, upcoming election in Alabama and the president's supported Roy Moore. And I, it's a contrast I am happy to hold as a Democrat.
1: Well, that's the that's the cynical interpretation, right, that this this is being done to remove the whataboutism. It's being mm-hmm. done to say, OK, we, we have cleaned our house so we can stand in moral judgment. And good. I
0: would like to do that. I would like to remove the whataboutism and I would like to clean our house. And I don't really care why you want to do it as long as we do it.
1: I am fine at this point with literally shaking out the Capitol building.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. I I don't have any problem with that. I saw this impassioned plea on Morning Joe today from a woman who is a feminist activist, and she was saying that she is worried that we are overcorrecting too hard, too fast, that people are losing their jobs without due process. That hit me that, that hits such a nerve for me that I need to talk about it for a second. Good,
0: because I had some women in my personal life bring that up, and it also hit a nerve for me.
1: Let's see if it's the same nerve. <laughs> well, so the lawyer in me, um, it hits a nerve with the, the person in me who really valued my law school education. It is critically important, I think, and I've talked about this on the show before, to separate out the principles that we apply in a court of law from the way we live mm. our lives.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Due process is a legal construct that applies in a legal setting. but Particularly me, when we
0: are depriving somebody of their liberty.
1: Yes, which is not the same as depriving them of an opportunity to do a specific task
2: mm-hmm.
1: and get mm-hmm. paid for it. Trust me, as a person who has spent the last 11 years working in the private practice of law, It is not a good thing when you bring all the skills and tools of the justice system to other facets of life. Lawyering the Bible, not a good plan. Mm -hmm. Lawyering lawyering your friends and family does not for healthy relationships make. Mm -hmm. These tools are critically important and the people who use them well every day do a great service to their clients and to our society. But it belongs in that context and none other. I feel very passionately about that. So I think it's dangerous and reckless to use the, t- the concept of due process outside the system for which that concept was invented. Mm-hmm. I also think that we are contributing to an unhealthy perspective on work when we start to act, as Rebecca Traster has said, like losing a job for a white man is death. Mm-hmm. It's not. And here's where I'm going to say something enormously unpopular, and I hope that you will hear this in the spirit I intend it and with some grace. (laughs) We can discuss it by email all you would like to. I understand. I'm not advocating for changing employment laws. I am, in fact, on record as supportive of adding discrimination laws in the state of Ohio to protect the LGBTQ plus community. I believe laws are symbolically important. When you start to negotiate the conditions of someone's employment through that lens of the judiciary, it never ends well, ever. Mm. And to act like people losing their employment because of one of these causes, one of these cases, accusations, concerns, repeated stories of inappropriate conduct. When you start to put all of that into the judicial framework... Which is something that we've been trying to do for a very long time, by the way, to very bad results, right? Because then you end up putting the victim effectively on trial. Then you end up with people making this calculus of should I speak out or not because the cost to me is so personally great that I don't want to do it. We're going to set ourselves backwards if we keep conflating these things. And the other thing I want to say, and then I'm going to shut up and hear what nerve it touched for you, Sarah... I've had some interactions on Twitter lately about Roy Moore versus Al Franken, which is a discussion that I struggle to have in a nuanced way, but I'm trying hard. And I think there is, I'm, I'm thrilled that there is pressure on Franken to resign and that Conyers has retired. I think that's the way it is supposed to be. However, I still think it's very important to understand the difference between Al Franken losing his job and Roy Moore being given a new one. Mm -hmm. I also think it's very different. We're always talking about an abuse of power in these situations. Clearly, an adult woman has more power than an underage woman. Mm -hmm. It's still wrong. Yes, it's wrong. And I don't want to do this splitting hairs about relative wrongness. I think that's missing the entire point. But if you're going to force my hand on it, I am absolutely going to tell you that Roy Moores is wronger. He is. Mm -hmm. And he should not be elevated to a new position of power under any circumstance. And that is a different question than whether a sitting senator should lose his job. It's a different Mm -hmm. question. So here's what bothers me about this whole
0: conversation. What I hear and what I keep hearing primarily from women is, oh my goodness, aren't we going to have false accusations? Okay. Here's what I hear way underneath that. It is two roles that I think have predominantly been foisted on women. So I read this amazing article that I sent to Beth that I'll send that was basically like, we are terrified of the female voice. And it went all the way through the like um, myth of the sirens and how dangerous they're, literally them speaking was dangerous. And I didn't know that the sirens was sort of conflated and that's how we got mermaids. And we can, all, we can spend a lot of time on Little Mermaid and how she had to give up her voice, literally her voice, to gain a soul, lots of stuff there. That's what I hear underneath all that. I hear... Some women are dangerous and some women, when given the opportunity, will prey on these poor men and give false accusations. And it's it's the same thing you hear with some women like to be.
1: If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more the cost breaks down to about two dollars a manicure olive and june also has press-ons if you want what i love though is that olive and june each season is coming out with new colors and i just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish they say this dries in about a minute it seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds it was not kidding about being quick dry I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray.
0: dot com slash be sexy some women go under your after your husbands some women are predator. like this whole women as predatory and it really bothers me because the takeaway of this scenario of this entire cultural moment is not that uh oh what are women going to do It's just not. And if that is your takeaway, I ask you to ask yourself some very difficult questions about societal messages you've heard your entire life because I just don't think that's the point. When I'm hearing stories from my grandmothers about how they were harassed and I'm hearing stories from my mother about how she was harassed, stories I'd never heard my whole life, the takeaway isn't, oh no, some poor man's gonna get falsely accused. I'm just, listen, I live in a house with four men, I love men. But like, that's not the point, you guys. And... The other undercurrent is, uh, is this poor men in this sort of protective role, and we need to protect men, and sort of they can't help it, and they might be falsely accused, and wouldn't that just be the worst scenario possible? Yes, that would be bad, and there is a high likelihood that that will happen. But if one or two, even national false accusation stories, it somehow imbalances and outweighs the decades... Of women losing their job for true accusations, for accurate accusations, for just, please, can I do my job without being raped or attacked or demeaned? If we can't see that that is a mountain and the risk of false accusations is a molehill, then we have to have a conversation.
1: It's like this with every change, too, because, yeah, some women are predators. Lots of men are, too. And we haven't made any kind of space for saying maybe we need to change the scales because some Mm -hmm. men are predators. And now that that's being suggested, the reaction is, oh, some women are predators. We can't change the scales. The status quo is preferable to that. Why? Yeah. And it's just Why is the status quo preferable to that?
0: And it's also this whole, like, well, what in the reverse? Well, what about Ellen DeGeneres harassing Katy Perry? Okay. Well, what if what if black people are being racist? Like I, I can't do that y'all. I can't do it. It's not about individuals. It doesn't it's not a get out of jail free card if a woman sexually harasses people. It doesn't negate the massive imbalance with the number of men who sexually harass people. It's about a structure of power. And so the structure of power is not the same if we're talking about a woman, it's not like, are there women who hold power and exploit it over other people? Of course there are. Of course there are. But that's not the cultural problem we're we are facing right now. That's not the societal ill that we are trying to have an honest conversation and face in its mind blowing size right now. Oh, man. I just I, like you sit down with a group of women and this is what and I just want to be like, really, this is what we want to talk about? This is the, this cultural moment. And our takeaway is, boy, let's sit around and worry about poor men being falsely accused. Are you freaking kidding me? Sorry.
1: Well, there is an element of responsibility underlying that, right? That you, you touched on this, the protector mm-hmm. aspect, that we can't only advocate for other women. We also must protect men at the same time. Because,
0: and let's not forget this, because many, many women's... um. Economic viability, safety, standard of living is dependent on a man. So it's not just fearfulness of, oh, my gosh, what if somebody got falsely accused, but fearfulness of what happened? What if this happened to my husband? Look, full, full disclosure, my life would be upended if my husband was falsely accused of sexual harassment and lost his job. Like, upended. I'd have to sell my house. We'd have to make some changes, OK? I'm not the primary breadwinner in my home. But that is not what I'm worried about right now. It just isn't. that would suck. That would really suck and I'm sure I would be very angry because I don't like unfairness. But like that's not the fear. My biggest fear more is that this doesn't change and I raise my sons in a world in which they're told that this is the value of this is the role of masculinity and that women are there for them to exploit. That would be a much worse outcome.
1: We received an email from uh, Jenny who is a therapist and she commented on this whole. Men are scared thread, too. That I think is informing a lot of those conversations among women, right? Gosh, Mm. men are afraid to do anything now. And aren't more men going to stop hiring women because they're scared of this? And can we even, can we ever fall in love at work? Can we ever have a relationship with someone else in any context other than, you know, I don't know what, we met at a bar or something? And Jenny's point was, everybody... That is not what we're talking about? No. That is not what we're talking about at all. You can do whatever you want to as long as everybody agrees. Word. And she sent us a great video on consent that we'll put in the show notes. This really isn't hard though. You can do whatever you want as long as everybody agrees. Seriously. And they they are able to actually agree without thinking about their livelihoods or their safety. If they can agree without feeling that their livelihoods or safety are being threatened, then you can do whatever you want. It's cool. Yeah, we're not preventing
0: any Luke and Laura scenarios where somebody falls in love with their rapist. That only happened on General Hospital. That is not a thing that
1: happens in real life. There is nothing to fear here, honestly. This is about the removal of fear. This is about Mm -hmm. saying if you want to have a loving relationship with another adult, make sure it's built on a healthy foundation instead of one of coercion.
0: So before we move on to the next segment, we just wanted to send lots of love and prayers to the people in California affected by the wildfires. Um, I know there are still lots of evacuations going on. And we just wanted to say that we're thinking about you and we hope everyone is um, safely evacuated.
1: Especially as the winds ramp up there in the way they are expected to over the next 48 hours or so. It's really a terrifying situation. And one thing I wanted to mention about this, Sarah, I went to an unconscious bias training where the presenter talked about how Midwesterners have a very difficult time feeling true empathy for people experiencing disasters like this.
2: Mm.
1: because a part of you says, that's horrible. I'm going to send some money. I'm so sorry this has happened. We're good at the sympathy side. But on the empathy front, there's this little voice that goes, but you chose to live there. Mm. And I thought that was so insightful and worth. I've thought about it a hundred times since that session. That's a good framework for a lot of the other discussions that we've just been having. If you can apply that to Israel and Palestine, if you can apply that to uh, gender-based harassment and abuse and assault, you can start to understand the world a lot better because a lot of us are good at saying, that's awful, but... But... And if we can start to notice that and remove that, it goes a very long way. Well, and also the idea of, almost in any scenario,
0: of... But you chose, I mean, think back on your own life in which you just had a blank piece of paper to make a choice on. That's really not how life goes. I don't I can list on one hand the opportunities in which I had like a truly blank paper to just make a choice, and
1: there weren't 20 plus factors weighing on me. You know what I mean? I think that's right. And that also doesn't it also doesn't mean that your choice is irrelevant. It's mm-hmm. both. It's it's both and I think and. that's true in all of the situations that we just discussed as well. There is responsibility at the individual level and the group level all the time. Yeah, all the time, all the time. It's so true.
0: All right, up next we're going to ca- uh, cover some listener feedback.
1: We received some feedback in response to The Nuance Life, actually our most recent episode, but it carried over to conversations that we've had on pansy Politics that we wanted to talk about. This is from uh, Juanita, and she pointed out that we have a tendency, and I admit this, to speak with deriv- derision about the baby boomers. And she pointed out that not every baby boomer is the same, that it is uncomfortable to hear that it makes her feel excluded from the community around the podcast. And I think her feedback was entirely fair and want to say that I'm sorry about that. It's true. And let me just say this too. Um,
0: I spent a solid decade, I just wasn't doing a podcast, (laughs) sort of like, um, like really empathizing with the baby boomers and defending them and like sort of using their push towards... Um, change and transition to justify all manner of things. Like, I used to always say, like, my parents would, like, get all up in the myth of the Golden Age, and I'd be like, listen, y'all's grandparents thought Elvis was the second coming of Satan. So y'all clearly were pushing the boundaries and did a good job. And, like, there's a massive amount of incredibly positive societal change that went on. on due in large part to the baby boomers also had this really great chamber talk um it was a father and a daughter and it was awesome they read this article from time magazine and it was like this generation doesn't want to hold a job they don't want to work i mean it sounded like they were talking about millennials but they weren't they were totally talking about baby boomers and like i think so much of this is i absolutely don't want to feel feel have somebody feel excluded and i do talk very dismissively about the generation Often, even though, obviously, my parents are baby boomers. I have a lot of baby boomers in my life I've loved very, very much. But I do think there's a part of this is just, like, it's just healthy generational conflict. It's just, like, what we do. We get frustrated. Y'all get frustrated with us. Like, it's just, it's like a parent-child relationship because it's sort of, that's the generational situation. And um, we definitely need, and I personally need, to inject a lot more grace and empathy. I also think it's applicable to a thing I said on The Nuance Life, too, which is... The parent always wants to hear thank you, and the child always wants to hear I'm sorry. And I think that's like a generational thing, too. Like the baby boomers, I think to a large part, want to hear a thank you. And I do thank them for the massive amount of societal change they um, pushed for. And we just want to hear I'm sorry for the things that they didn't get perfect because no generation gets everything perfect. So I, I think this a lot of this is healthy, but I, I should be more um, kind in my speech about baby boomers.
1: Two things that brought up for me. I have been in many 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 meetings and conversations about the millennials right and it's said like capital t capital m the mm-hmm. millennials and even recently you know conversations about how the millennials are new to the workforce the workforce is going to have to adjust to the millennials and i sit there as a millennial technically and think i've been in the workforce for over a decade this isn't yeah. new i have children i have the same kinds of concerns that people in generation x have So maybe we need to modernize our thinking. Mm -hmm. And occasionally when I get really fed up, I'll raise a hand and say, hey, 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 y'all, I'm a millennial.
2: Yeah.
1: And in one such conversation, uh, you've been infiltrated. The principal speaker on this topic looked at me and said, yeah, but not you. Like, you're not really (laughs) a millennial. And I think that. But listen, I do that to baby boomers. I, like, I have right. a friend who's so amazing
0: and open-minded. And I'll be like, baby, she's like, I'm a baby boomer. I'm like, yeah, but not
1: you. <laughs> and that's exactly what this message called out to me because, because she wrote to us, and I thank her for this, in a very personal way and talked about, like, this is a friendship between us. When I'm listening to your podcast, it's like a relationship. And so when you talk about this whole group, I do hear me in it. And my reaction would be, well, not you. And, and I think it is important to be more cognizant. And when I think about my friends, not my family, not the people I'm supposed to love, but the people I choose in my life, some of the most important ones are baby boomers.
2: Mm-hmm. Which
1: leads me to my second point. I'm reading, as I've mentioned too much, uh, Richard Rohr's book. And he talks throughout the book about the importance of elders in our society and how we have stopped valuing this sense of, not not totally master and apprentice, but I've walked this path before and I've learned some things and let me advise you on those. Mm-hmm. And I think some of that is, is it makes sense why that's happened because the world has changed so fast. So a lot of us have a tendency, I certainly do, to look at people who've walked the path before me and say, right, but that was a different path. And so... I don't know that you do understand my path now. And there's there is room for both of us to learn in that process. And that's what my baby boomer friendships are like, where we where the baby boomer says, I've walked this path before and I've learned some things. Let me share them. And I say, that's really valuable. How do I apply it? recognizing that the road is different and then the baby boomer says it is different and I want to learn about that too. And we're both learning from each other and it's a beautiful thing. And so um, I think sometimes our shorthand, our shorthand is always what gets us in trouble Anytime we talk about a group in shorthand or a problem in shorthand, that's where we get in trouble on pansy Politics. That's where we get in trouble in life. And this message really brought that out for me. And I also want to say that it makes me feel like we have such a healthy relationship with listeners when we can get that kind of criticism and it feel like a lesson and a gift instead of like, I don't know, the people who write to me occasionally to break up with us. You know, (laughs) it's just um, I, I really, really value this message. Yeah, I agree. I
0: love people that write to us like that. Like, um, And we actually, speaking of, we had several messages with regards to our conversation about restraints and special education. Um, Jill wrote to us and talked about her son and the fact that he has to be restrained. And she felt like my comment was very snarky. And she's totally right. I was very dismissive because in my head we were talking about a scenario in which – um, the child is being restrained without the parents' consent or understanding of what's going on. Because I was thinking about it, sort of. Because the article is writing about it in a very like this. Is, these were the abuses. But I did very dismissively talk about that, um, even though I, you know, I know myself that there are situations in which children um, are restraint in full like sort of treatment plan, consent driven situations with the parents, pro- most likely in um, many scenarios to keep the child from harming him or herself. So I was very appreciative of Jill's very graceful message to me that was like, dude, that was rude because <laughs> she was right. And so it was very helpful.
1: And you, we also got a message from a special education teacher as well. Kellyan wrote to us and then Shannon, who's another educator, wrote to us and they both made the point that there are situations where isolation is necessary for a child who's overstimulated and needs to be mm-hmm. calmed. And that and Kellyan, Kellyan's message really touched me because here's a person who's doing the very hard work of working with special education students every day from a place of love and interest in helping them blossom and grow. And And so she agreed that the data needs to be better, but did point out that these techniques are helpful sometimes. And then Shannon brought up a perspective that I think is really important, that sometimes this is just a matter of safety. And she talked about how pervasive fights are among students. And she said some of those fights involve special education students, and a lot of them don't. But that schools have become rather violent and that teachers Mm -hmm. are often having to use their bodies to get students away from each other to keep people from getting hurt. And she is being trained right now on how to do that in a safe way that respects everyone and, and keeps herself and the students safe at the same time. My goodness, we are asking too much of teachers in that scenario.
0: So in my high school, um, this reminds me that I, I, I don't. I think that the high schools and um, educational settings are absolutely probably becoming more violent. But in my high school, because we had fights, obviously, when I was in high school, there was like one kid. <laughs> the teachers basically like like he was like the school fight breaker upper. They would like either call him or definitely like sit back and sort of look at him like, Are you going to break this up? (laughs) I'm glad they're coming up with better scenarios instead of depending on one student to break up all the
1: fights. We got to do a better job as parents. You know, Mm -hmm. I I think this gets back to Sarah and I, after we recorded our extended discussion on church clothes for the nuanced life. It was really good,
0: y'all. I got so many things off my chest. I feel so much better after that conversation.
1: And if you are not into church clothes, listen, we did touch on a listen, lot of Listen, it's way deeper things. than that. There's more involved. We talked about airports, which we're on, airlines. Listen, there
0: is a lot wrapped up
1: in clothing. But after we hung up, we started talking about this sense of whatever makes a kid happy is sometimes the governing parental philosophy. And yeah. we got a message from Susan who treats children. She's a doctor treating children with cancer. And she talked about how you can see families who have had that as the prevailing philosophy really struggle when a lot of what has to happen for a child is not going to make the child happy. It was a really touching message that I've thought a lot about, too.
0: I mean, I think part of this is, look, I can be super confident in my uh, my approach to parenting, in large part because I am mirroring my parents' approach, and I, for the most part, am a happy, well-adjusted adult. And so I'm not undoing, which is very difficult, my raising, as we say in the South. So, like, my mom just had an approach of, like, I am not here to make you happy. This is not my job. Um, My mom's famous quote was I told her that there were friends of mine, and the mom and the daughter were very good friends. And my mom looked at me and said, I got lots of friends. I don't need any more friends. You're my daughter. So, like, I – but I love my mom. We have a good relationship. I now live down the street. So, like, there's just a part of me that's, like, it's very easy for me to be, like, I'm very confident in that approach because that's what was used on me, and I turned out – I mean, I think I turned out great. Other people might disagree. But, I mean, I think that's part of it. Part of it is just, like, this is a whole episode of The Nuance Life, clearly. This will be our next episode. I like to tease the episodes. We'll talk about this. <laughs> but, like, it's very difficult when you're undoing, when you're changing the way you were raised. Because that's, like, a hardwired
1: thing. That's a very difficult thing. And I just looked into some people that I didn't need to undo everything they did. And even so... I've been thinking a lot about how hard being a parent is and how hard being a parent is for me when I have two children who so far don't need anything other than just kind of the easiest path of parenting. They don't have physical Mm -hmm. or mental needs that require anything special of me. And it's still hard. And I had an unbelievably supportive, nurturing, wonderful upbringing from my mom and dad, who are still married to each other. My my existence, my childhood was unaffected by divorce. My aunts and uncles stayed married to one another. I mean, I had a really idyllic and sheltered upbringing. And I still find parenting in my middle-class family with an incredibly supportive husband and two very healthy children daunting. Word. And so... I think we got to do a better job helping each other through that process, because if the result of people like me still finding parenting daunting is that our our schools and our needs from teachers are escalating,
2: mm-hmm.
1: we're not sharing enough information with each other.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I, I have adopted this idea. And again, what do I know? What I'm realizing more and more with my girls, and I'll stop. Sarah's thinking right now. Save this for the Nuanced Life. I can feel you thinking it, and I will stop in just a second. I promise. <laughs> what I've adopted with my girls is realizing this whole idea of if you want to act like an if you want to be treated like an adult, you need to act like an adult is backwards.
2: Hmm.
1: I have realized that the more I treat them like adults, the more they can rise to the occasion. So that doesn't mean whatever makes you happy. It means here are your responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And when you achieve your responsibilities, then we can talk about what's pleasant for you. But Mm -hmm. first, we focus in on your responsibilities. Now, your principal responsibilities are to be kind and respectful human beings. Yeah, dude, they're not hard. It's not like I'm putting all kinds of responsibilities
0: on you. You're two. But like screaming at me because you want to watch Miles from Tomorrowland
1: inside an episode of How the Grinch Stole Christmas,
0: that's not fulfilling your responsibilities, friend.
1: That doesn't work. Jane and I had a very intense encounter this week while my husband has been out of town because I walk into her bedroom in the morning and she's sitting on her bed listening to music. Just side note, I hate the Descendants movies with a burning passion. And I feel like every time she listens to the music from those movies, she acts horribly. But anyway, she's (laughs) sitting on her bed with that music playing, like writing in this little journal. She has not done her morning routine. She's supposed to make her bed. She's supposed to turn the light on in her aquarium, brush her teeth, you know. And we had this whole conversation about, you got to put first things first. I'm happy for you to listen to this music and write in your journal after everything else is done. And so... Really, the more adult-like expectations I put on her and adult-like communications I have with her, the better she behaves. And side note, I find this true in the workplace as well. When you treat employees like professionals, no matter what jobs they have, they will blow your mind with how capable and wonderful they are, you know, and how how much they'll put into the workplace. So I think there is something to not treating kids like kids in order to raise them to be good adults. Word. Word. I totally agree. I mean, well, we're going to have to wrap this up because we're we're going
0: fully on into the nuanced Life territory. And we have to get through. I'm very excited about this. Uh, we've had lots of questions about stuff, which is pretty much my most favorite topic of all time. So we're planning an approximately 55-part series on stuff, beginning with my obsession with the television show Hoarders. And just carrying it away, all the way through to, like,
1: organizing your silver drawer, y'all. It's going to be amazing. I'm so excited. I'm going to do my best to hang for 55 parts of <laughs> it. or even it'll be January you know, too. It'll be so good. Like we
0: can start a little bit now. We can carry this all. Everybody wants to talk about stuff and organizing in January.
1: It's going to be awesome. You guys. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for embracing the nuanced life. We really appreciate it. We hope that you'll continue to do that and we will be back with you on Tuesday. Who knows what will happen between now and then, Ugh. but until then, keep it nuanced y'all. Thank you so much to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, Leslie, Sabrina, and George.
0: You can join us on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Pantsuit Politics and on Twitter at Politic, no S. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to Patreon.com or reviews are always helpful and you can leave
1: one through the Apple Podcast app. Thank you to Dante Lima, the composer of our Pantsuit Politics theme music.